following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. If you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In Athens, Athens, Greece, there's an inscription that they uncovered, and it is dated back to the time of the Apostle Paul, and it says this. Are you ready? Once a man dies, and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. Modern translation, when you're dead, you're dead. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. And today, you need to determine where you stand. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then all he taught about salvation, about heaven, about hell, about forgiveness, about judgment, all of that is absolutely true. But if not, then would you please today enjoy free ice cream out on the patio Get a great meal today, gorge yourself with chocolate eggs, because friends, this is all there is if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead. There is no middle ground. There is none. And happy for us, the Corinthians were somewhat confused and also belittling and really thinking that the resurrection didn't matter. So the Apostle Paul writes an entire chapter, chapter 15, of 1 Corinthians to clarify and help them to understand exactly what the resurrection means. And we're going to spend the next six Easter's unfolding this chapter together. So just be here every Easter and we'll work through the whole chapter together. And we're going to begin with the first 11 verses of chapter 15, which are the proofs of the resurrection. You know what? The Bible actually wants you to know that there are proofs that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is resurrected, and that his teaching of how to be right with God is absolutely correct in every possible way. And he gives four major proofs that are found in this particular passage. So track with me, if, we, if you would, in your outline. Point number one, as we rock right in here, is the proof of perseverance. The proof of perseverance. Listen and read, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, literally he's saying, pay attention, friends, this is important, and he says, the what? Gospel. That's the good news, which Paul preached to you, which he also received, which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if, there's the condition, are you persevering, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. God says, did you hear what's most important? Most important is the gospel, the good news. Now understand why it's good news. Because every faith, including non-faith, is believing that somehow they're going to work their way to heaven by being good enough. Christianity is the only faith that exists on planet earth that says you cannot do the work to earn your way to heaven. God did the work on your behalf. 
you were unable to be righteous enough to stand in a holy God's presence, so therefore God loved you and was merciful enough to extend that work. That's why we call it the gospel, which means what? Good news. It's good news because God did the work. We're freed from trying to earn our salvation when we receive the free gift that God did through his son Jesus Christ. The question that Paul is raising here is, do you have that genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Maybe you did in the past, but the question that he's asking here is, it's only true if, Paul says, look at verse 2, if you hold fast, literally, if you continue to believe and follow Jesus Christ. Listen, our holding on to Jesus is an evidence that he's holding on to us. Our holding on to Christ is evidence that he's holding on to us. Maybe you know a, a, a friend or a family member who walked away from Christ or walked away from the church. When a so-called Christian says they believed in Jesus or even kind of acted like a Christian for a while but later rejects Christ, God says in his word they're showing us that their salvation was never real in the first place. They didn't persevere. They didn't endure. They were able to let go of the things of God because they themselves were hanging on to it. It wasn't something that God did on their behalf. In fact, look what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not of us. What he's saying is they didn't belong. They weren't really truly born again. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here, verse 2, such a person didn't hold fast to the word because their faith was never real. Paul, look what he says in verse 2. He says it's vain. That means empty. It wasn't genuine. He can't hold fast because he or she wasn't held fast. And, and Christ repeatedly gives reference to three kinds of people. Three kinds of people. One is the believer. One is the non-believer. And the other one, the scary one, is the make-believer. The make-believer has a phony faith that makes him look or she look like a Christian, but they're on the wide road that basically doesn't lead to heaven, even though the signs say it does. It leads to eternal torment and hell. And some of the Corinthians had an external commitment to Christ, but they weren't born again. They had not submitted to or standing firm on the work that God had done for them through Jesus Christ. That God had become a man, died on the cross, bore all of God's punishment for sin, rose from the dead. That's the message of the gospel, that God did the work. When we embrace it by faith, then he can cover us with his righteousness. We can stand right before God. And that's not happening to everybody in the Corinthian church. They're not standing firm. So where's the proof then that Jesus is real? Well, point number one, despite their immaturity, <laughs> despite their many weaknesses, the fact that the Corinthian church is enduring here is evidence that God is real, that Christ is real, that the reality of Christ and what he said is genuine. I mean, who but a risen, living Christ could have taken extortioners, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, liars, idolaters that made up the Corinthian church and make them and transform them into a totally different people and make them into a church that actually got along and worshiped the Lord together. Who could do that except for God himself? That's what he's saying here. You know, sometimes you write our date, right? 2023, correct? Are you with me? 
So 2,023 years from what? From Jesus Christ who changed all of history. And, and what he's saying here is that Christ has caused his people, his message, his church to endure, and they have survived every, every attack manageable. I mean, imaginable. I mean, unimaginable. It's unbelievable. Proving that Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, some of you are going, wait, wait a minute, Chris. Uh, I, I, you're thinking a lot of religions have been around for a long time. That's not good enough for me. I'm so glad you said that because point number two. The other proof that he gives us is the proof of the Bible. There's four proofs here. This is the second proof, and it's found in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. Take a look at it. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance, he's explaining now the gospel, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the, what? Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul's telling you what the gospel is and how it is proven to be true. All these massive prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before his birth, prove the truth of Christianity. See, truth is really not <laughs> what you think it is. Uh, that's pretty fashionable today. Truth is actually what God revealed it is. And what is that truth? Well, look again at verse 3. Take a look. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What does that mean? Number one priority is the gospel. I gave you the truth. This is the most important truth that exists on planet Earth. How can you be right with God and God's the one who did the work, right? It's the most important truth. Paul says, look, I didn't come you know, and uh, basically give you the, uh, you know, as, as I'm bringing this most important life-saving drug, I didn't come and just talk about the weather to you. I gave you what was necessary, right? I gave you the most important thing. Listen, when, when someone's drowning, right, you can yell at him, right? Start to swim, right? He's drowning. Here, this is how you do it. Cup your hands, move your arms. You can do that, or you can what? Throw him a life preserver. What did Paul do? He didn't just tell them. He threw them the most important thing, the gospel, the life preserver that would preserve them, save them, rescue them. The greatest sacrifice ever made is the gospel, the good news. Take a look at two facts about the gospel that are found in this text. Take a look at fact number one there in your outline. Christ died for what? Our sins and was buried. That's good news. That's good news. He didn't die for his sin. He did. He didn't have any. He died for our sin. What's sin? Sin is our selfish, uh, proud independence. It's our rejection of God's rule, uh, our rejection of God's character, our missing the point of his perfection, our disobedience to his law. That's sin. So every wrong thought, every unloving action, uh, every harsh word, bad attitude, which means basically proving that we're all sinners, we have a nature that sins, and sin, are you ready, is what separates you from a perfect holy God. That's what keeps you out of relationship with him. That's what keeps you from being able to be in his presence, and we all feel the weight of his coming judgment for sin, no matter what you say, we all feel the weight of that because that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout planet earth for saved and unsaved. We all know that's coming. 
The penalty for sin is death, and it's not just about physical death, but actually eternal death, separation from him in hell forever. But God loves us so much that he actually had his own son pay the price for our sin, to suffer death, to suffer God's wrath on him on the cross, your sin and my sin. And Jesus did that on the cross to satisfy God's anger for sin and enable you to be covered in his righteousness so you could stand in his presence. And this has been predicted from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 all the way through the Old Testament. That's why it listed there in your outline, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. He was pierced through for whose transgression? Our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. In other words, your sin, your punishment fell on Christ. When you put your faith in him, his righteousness can then cover you, making that perfect robe of white righteousness able you to stand in God's presence now and forever. Now, does that mean that everybody's a Christian? No. You need to have faith in what God has done, what Christ has done for you in order to gain forgiveness of sin in your own life. But some will say, well, Jesus could never forgive my sin. It's too horrible. You know, God forgave Paul for murder, David for adultery, and Mary for prostitution. No matter what you've done, Christ can forgive you if you turn and follow him. Can I hear an amen to that? Which leads us to the second fact about the gospel. Fact number two in there in your outline is that he was raised on the third day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is more good news. Jesus Christ is alive. All right? This is not a dead person that we're worshiping. The, the verb raised there is in a tense that means he was raised at a particular time and he remains raised. In other words, it's very specific here. So how do we know? What's the proof that he beat death, that he's eternal, that he's the judge you're going to have to answer to for all your life? Did you see the proof that he gave in verses 3 and 4? What did he say? He said it twice in these two verses. Ready? According to the scriptures. Twice. The scriptures in this passage refers to the Old Testament. And Jesus told us several times, even as his post-resurrection appearances, that the Old Testament was written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before he was born, and these prophecies and their fulfillment prove that Jesus is God. He took on human flesh. He died for our sins. He was buried. Then he rose from the dead to live as the only way to know God, to go to heaven, to be transformed, to know forgiveness, to be right with God now and forever. That's it. And the Bible proves what Jesus said and what Jesus did was true, all of it. So anytime he talked about heaven, any time he talked about hell, any talked about judgment is all accurate. You say, well, how does it prove he's real? Well, I want you to uh, participate with me in a little study of the Bible and uh, really quickly an experiment. And I want you to think through some Old Testament prophecies, eight of them. Let's just use eight of them. And we're going to use simple probability. I know some of you flunked math, but that's okay. To try to answer one question, one man and how many men has fulfilled this prophecy? Then allow me to give a conservative probability estimate in order to help you see the Old Testament prophecies prove Christianity is real and the resurrection really did happen. Listen, at FBC, we want math majors to feel welcome here. Okay, so here we go. First, take a look in your outline. Micah 5.2 predicts that Christ will be born in Bethlehem. One man and how many men the world over has been born in Bethlehem? 
Well, take the average population of Bethlehem from Micah down to the present time, divide it by the average population of the entire earth during that same time, and you come up with 1 times 10 to the fifth power, or one man in 100,000 was born in Bethlehem. Okay, and I'm, I'm guesstimating way low here, so math majors are going to want to correct me, but I'm going on the underside, math majors, okay, the low side, conservative. Number two, M- Malachi 3.1, behold... I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Of the men who have been born in Bethlehem, one man and how many men are had a forerunner to prepare his way? I'll say one in a thousand. Uh, number three, Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O Jerusalem. This is all Old Testament. Behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, and riding upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. One man, and how many men, has entered Jerusalem, a ruler, entering, riding a colt, the fowl of an ass. I would say that's pretty rare, but let's say one to the fourth power, or one times ten to the fourth power, which is one in ten thousand. All right? Clear? So far. Fourthly, we're moving fast. Zechariah 13.6. What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he answers, those with which I was wounded in the house of my, what? Friends. So Christ was betrayed by Judah. Who, uh, Judas, who was one of the disciples, uh, ca- causing him to be put to death, wounds made in his hands. One in how many men the world over have been betrayed by a friend and then had that result in him being wounded in the hands. Now, this is very rare uh, to be betrayed by a friend, even rarer to the betrayal to involve the wounding of hands. But let's just say, conservatively, one in 1,000 people, okay? That's pretty low, but let's go there. Fifthly, Zechariah eleven twelve, And I said, give me my price. And they weighed out for my price, what? 30 pieces of silver. Of the people who have been betrayed, one in how many has been betrayed exactly for 30 pieces of silver? This would be super rare, but let's say one in 1,000. Again, I'm assuming low, so you know that I'm not stacking the deck here. Sixthly, Zechariah 11:13. I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, one man and how many, after receiving a bribe for the betrayal of a friend, returned that money, had it refused, threw it on the floor of the house of the Lord, and then had it used to purchase a field from a potter. Okay, are you with me? Was there ever such an incident involving all those items? I would say one in fifth, you know, 10 to the fifth power, which is one in 100,000. Pretty rare there. Seventh, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep brought before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. One man, and how many men? After fulfilling the above prophecies, when he's on trial for his life, though innocent, made no defense of himself. Well, that would be one in a thousand. All right, let's just be low. And then eighth, Psalm 22, verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. One man and how many men from the time of David has been crucified? One in 10,000 or 10 to the fourth power. Now, if these estimates are considered fair and I made them low, One man and how many men, the world over, will fulfill all eight uh, prophecies. So what's the probability of this happening? All right, this is a big illustration for you from the Old Testament. By figuring out the estimates together mathematically, you end up with 1 times 10 to the 28th power. Now, those of you who understand this, that means a 1 with 28 zeros that follow it. Uh, That word is an octillion. Write that down. It's really fun. Octillion, all right? Now, what's the chance that any man might have lived from the day of these prophecies down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies? We can answer that question simply by dividing our number by the total number of people who have ever lived since that time of these prophecies to today. 
conservatively, when you do that, it ends up being 1 times 10 to the 17th power, or 17 zeros following a 1. There's one chance in 10 to the 17th power that one man could fulfill these eight prophecies, almost a quintillion. Write that down. That's also fun. All right? Now, try to visualize this, if you would. All right? So you understand this. If you mark one of 10 tickets, and you place all the tickets in a hat, and then you stir the, the hat, and you blindfold a guy, and he reaches into the hat to pull out, you know, one ticket, then he has one chance in 10 of getting it right. Everybody with me so far? So, let's visualize the probability of, suppose we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, all right, that many, and lay them on the face of the great state of Texas, all right? Now, Texas is big. Everybody with me on this? If you're Texan, you know you're big, all right? Now, understand when you do the math, that will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. That's how many. Now, mark one of those silver dollars, if you would, and drop it from a plane, just flying over randomly, the sewer district is eject, and it goes out into the state of Texas somehow. Then you stir that whole mass thoroughly over the state with giant bulldozers for a month, okay? We get Andy going, and we're stirring up everything going, all right? Then you want to blindfold Lonnie, all right? Lonnie here is going to get blindfolded. We're saying, Lonnie, get in the car, drive as long as you want. In fact, it takes you about 16, 18 hours to get across the state of Texas. Just drive, whatever. Get out of the car at some point, you know, in the middle of that drive, just with the blindfold on, even though he's driving, it's silver dollars, so you're not going to wreck anybody. So anyway... And reach down and pick up one silver dollar, just one, what chance would he have of getting the right one? The same chance the prophets would have of writing all these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present. You get it? Now understand. Incredible, isn't it? The Old Testament scripture written long before the birth of Christ Prove that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he resurrected from the dead, that he rose, he's alive. They prove he's the only way to be right with God. You really? Sure. If you think my estimates are too high, let me give you this challenge. Lower them as low as you like. Go ahead. But remember this. There are not eight Old Testament prophecies of Christ. There are 300 Old Testament prophecies of Christ. 300. I didn't do the math on 300. It hurt me, okay? So understand this. And the Old Testament, you say, it was manipulated. Really? It was translated from Hebrew into Greek 200 years before Christ called the Septuagint that the apostles and Jesus himself quoted from. The, the Septuagint wasn't messed with. In the business world, if the investment has nine chances in ten of being profitable and only one chance in ten of being a failure, that's a safe investment. Whoever heard of an investment that you have one chance in ten to the 17th power of failure, yet we are offered this investment by God, and God states it, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, take a look at it, that Christ is proving according to the Scriptures. He's proven according to the Scriptures. By submitting to Jesus Christ as our master now, basically we know from only eight prophecies, which have only one chance in 10 to the 17 power of being wrong, that this investment will yield the wonderful dividend of eternal life with God forever in heaven and abundant life with Christ now. It's not going to be a, a sinless life. It's not going to be a perfect life. It's going to be a life where you are now finally reconnected with the God who created you in a way that you're in relationship with him now and will be forever. 
any person who rejects Jesus Christ as the only way to be right with God is rejecting a fact that is proved more absolutely than any fact in history. Christ is risen, alive, and God that you will have to answer to. It is according to the Scriptures. Well, if that weren't enough, there's a third proof. The proof of the appearances. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not making this up. I'm just drawing out what he says here. And he goes right for the appearances of Christ post-resurrection. So he appeared to so many people. It says in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the 12. Verse 6. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren. When? At one time. Most of whom remain until now. Meaning they're still alive. Some have died, some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Listen, the New Testament points to ten post-appearances of Christ after his death when he rose from the dead for 40 days. The word appeared there in verse 5, appeared is four times there in this particular passage. And it refers to the reality of sight. That this is a reality issue. That he was really seen. He wasn't just wished for. He wasn't just imagined. In fact, understand that the New Testament, again, wants you to know. Some of you think this is just kind of a weird exercise. The New Testament wants you to know that this is proven. It's proof. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Luke wrote these words to these Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. So look at who Jesus was undeniably seen by. The first is Peter. You say, why is Peter singled out? Well, because to show that any sin, even denial, even desertion can be forgiven. You know what's scary? There's some people here who've denied Christ. There's some people here who've deserted Christ. But they can be forgiven, can't they? Because Peter showed us. Peter had just denied Christ three times, but after rising from the dead, Jesus said, make sure you tell, are you ready? Especially Peter. Especially Peter. Then verse 6, Jesus appeared to more than 500, many of whom are still alive 20 years later. Some of them might have even been in the Corinthian church. They were from all over. And when Paul wrote the Corinthians and, and could personally testify to the fact of his bodily resurrection, they would say, we saw him. We saw him. We were there. Verse 7 says, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James. How do you like that? Can you imagine what it would be like if your brother came back from the dead and declared to you that he was the son of God? Your brother did that? If my brother did that, I would smack him and then check him into the psych ward, all right? Because I know he's not. You know what? James didn't. James knew. It all fit because there was no denying it. And then, verse 8, Jesus appeared to Paul, transforming him from Christian killer to Christ proclaimer. So what if they're all wrong? What if... They, just for a moment, he didn't rise from the dead. Well, let's examine, just for a moment, the other options. 
the other options. If Jesus didn't bodily raise from the dead, then what could have happened? Here's what the skeptics say. First, some would say he went to the wrong tomb, right? This view states that after three days, the woman who reported the body missing was so emotional that she went to the wrong tomb. But if that's true, then all the disciples went to the wrong tomb. The crack Roman unit ended up guarding the wrong tomb. All the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus dead also forgot which tomb he was in. And the owner of the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, also forgot where his own tomb was. Not very likely, right? So some would say the resurrection was just a wishful hallucination. Now, this theory asserts that those who saw Jesus wanted to see him so badly that they wished him and dreamt him up in their minds. Now, this not only this view is unsupported by the psychological principles governing the appearance of hallucinations, but it also doesn't make sense. I mean, for this to be true, everybody who saw Jesus would have to have imagined him. Then every one of the post-resurrection appearances would have to have been a hallucination. And then every one of the 500 people who saw Jesus after he resurrected also imagined him. And then again, all the Jewish leaders had to do was produce the dead body to disprove the Christian claim that he had risen from the dead, which they didn't. So, thirdly, some say Jesus didn't die on the cross at all, but that he just fainted. He swooned. This theory says that Jesus didn't really die. He merely passed out from exhaustion and loss of blood. You know, hey, come on. Medical knowledge was not as good back then as today, right? So what do they say happened next? Well, they speared Jesus in his side, and blood and water came out, signifying death, And then they wrapped him in grave clothes about six inches thick with a goop that made these clothes as hard as a cast. And then they laid him in a tomb and rolled a two-ton stone in the way and put four to 16 trained Roman soldiers there to guard it. Then what happened was incredible. Incredible. Some moisture from the cave began to form on Jesus' forehead. And, And he awoke two days later. And though he had been tortured, crucified, and speared, he unwrapped himself from inside that gigantic cast over his whole body. He removed the two-ton stone all by himself over the entrance. He beat up all the guards and ran away. And after that, he told everybody he'd risen from the dead. Does that sound likely? A fourthly, if you say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but that the disciples secretly came and stole his body. They stole his body and claimed that he rose from the dead. Now, how did this happen? The depressed and cowardly disciples who had fled when Jesus was arrested finally banded together in a crack military unit. And all the while, the guards are asleep, which meant their death if they were caught. The disciples tiptoed quietly past the Romans without a sound, rolled the two-ton stone balder back, stole the body away. And after that, and for the remainder of their lives, each of them individually and all of them corporately claimed that Jesus was alive. That claim cost them their lives. Each of them suffered and died for a lie, if this is true. A claim they died for. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified yet shared Christ for days. Matthew died by the sword. John's the only one who died a natural death, but it's told that he was boiled in oil twice for his faith. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, was crushed by stones. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Bartholomew was crucified. And James, the son of Zebedee, died by the sword. If the disciples stole the body, then every one of them died for a lie. 
a known lie, an intentional lie. Is that what happened? Jesus' followers couldn't have faced torture and death unless they were convinced of his resurrection. Their testimony of the resurrection is proof of the reality of Christ, the truth of Christianity, that he rose from the dead, that he is alive, and he is the one you will face when you enter and go through the door of death. When someone says, prove it, just point to the tomb. Buddha's still there. Muhammad's still there. Joseph Smith's still there. Confucius is still there. Mary's still there. But the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. Point to the lives of those Jesus appeared to and say, would you knowingly die for a lie? The post-resurrection appearances of Christ are proof And add to these three evidences the final proof, and that is found, number four, the proof of a changed life. The proof of a changed life. Again, Paul in his argument, I'm just telling you with my points what he's saying. And in verses 9 and 10, what's he say? He says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, And by his grace toward me, I did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. A changed life is an incredible proof of the reality of Jesus. Before meeting Christ, Paul was an intolerant, proud, temperamental, bitter, persecuting, religious bigot. After his conversion on the Damascus Road, He became a patient, kind, enduring, self-sacrificing servant of God. He changed from Christian killer to Christian equipper. From a religion to a relationship. From a law lover to a love giver. From a Jewish zealot to a Gentile evangelist. The risen Christ totally changed Paul's life. And he can change yours totally if you seek him, if you cry out for him. What changes did Jesus make in Paul? Well, the Bible records four of them. There in your outline, God will produce in every Christian. These describe the real thing, not the phony religiosity of our day. Are these true of you? Well, first, disclosure of your own sinfulness. Disclosure of your own sinfulness. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul openly admitted his sinfulness. You know what he called himself? A wretched man that I am. He said, I am the chief of sinners, present tense, ongoing, right now. What about you? Are you honest about your sinfulness? 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you admit sin or excuse it? Do you confess sin or ignore it? Do you blame others or do you blame yourself? You can't become right with God unless you've admit sin because that's what Jesus died for, sin. Your sin. Secondly, dependence upon God alone. Verse 10, he says, but but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Salvation is by grace, which means it's a gift. 
It's, it's not something you earn or work for or do good deeds so you can earn his favor. It is a gift. The heart of a Christian admits that everything in life, minus your sin, is grace. God's grace is giving you what you don't deserve, which you could never get for yourself. God's grace, listen, gave you your family, your home, your job. Some of you are going, wait a minute, I work really hard to keep my job. Who gave you the strength to work hard? Are you a self-made person, captain of your own soul, or are you one who's dependent on God's grace alone? You cannot know Christ unless you come to him dependence by his grace. Thirdly, dedication to serve others. Paul writes in verse 10, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. When you experience God's grace, a Christian serves not because of guilt, not because of pressure, but because Jesus has given us so much we cannot help but give back to the one who gave us everything. Do you deserve salvation, yes or no? Because he gave us so much and he lavished us with his love and mercy and grace. We want to serve. Is that your heart? Is there any ministry in your life that you can only explain by God serving through you? And fourthly, devoid of self. Although Paul admitted that he had labored even more than all of them. Look at verse 11. He wasn't concerned about those who got the credit, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, we preach and so you believe. Listen, Paul didn't care and didn't compare. It didn't matter who did the labor, who got the credit, as long as those separated from God turned to Christ. God gives Christians a heart of love that destroys a competitive spirit to be better than somebody else. And to Paul, it didn't matter. It didn't matter who hit the ball as long as home runs were made. And the home runs where people were coming to Christ. He didn't care how it happened. What about you? <clears throat> Are you a genuine believer who is intimate with Christ, has a new heart that's been transformed by Christ? The only way that salvation is real is not only are you justified, made right, covered in his righteousness, but that he's changed you internally and has given you a new heart. Paul's heart was changed. Christ changed my heart, my life, dramatically. And if you look around you and you look at this guy standing next to me, you'll see people whose lives have been dramatically changed. I asked Brandon Carson to share a little bit how God changed his life. Would you? Yes. <clears throat> so first of all, my wife told me to smile and if you can't see it, it's underneath my mustache. Um, okay, so my name is Brandon Carson, like Chris said. Um, I grew up in a Christian household, went to church, went to youth group. Uh, I was a good kid. I was good as the world's standards are. Uh, I didn't realize that I was rebelling against uh, holy God, and I was filled with selfishness and pride. Went to Forest Home Church Camp when I was around 12 years old and realized the ramifications of my sin, which are the, wa the wages of sin is death. Um, I understood that my sin separated me from God and I needed a Savior. I submitted my life to Christ as my Lord and my Savior, uh, which should have caused an obedient heart. So this is where my testimony is a little different than I think others that you've heard. 
Um, usually hear Christ changed, and then all of a sudden they're amazing, uh, which is very true in many cases. Um, <clears throat> become a, becoming a believer at such a young age, uh, without diligence of reading God's word, led me into a good but mediocre, works-driven lifestyle. I was resting in a decision that I made when I was 12 years old. I continued to go to church, and I was good, just like I was good before. Yet rarely I saw fruit in my life. I wasn't a vessel for the Lord. I was a vessel for myself. Um, I did not have a grasp on two things, which is glorifying God and killing sin and besetting sin in my life. Several years ago, I allowed my flesh to drag me into a habitual sin, hurting my relationship with God and hurting my relationship with my wife. Um, I was a hearer of the word and not a doer. As I hope a lot of you take this into your hearts that hearing the word and not doing it has no assurance of salvation. Uh, John Owen said that either you're going to be killing sin or it's going to be killing you. So thankfully, God disciplines the ones he loves, and he gave me assurance of my salvation just in the discipline itself. Worthless as a believer, not glorifying God, having no spiritual discipline, I was not a man that the word shows as a shepherd to his family or the church. I needed God's grace and the spirit. For practical disciplines in my life and relying on the spirit uh, for the fruit of repentance and a life transformed I presented, I'm now presenting my life as a holy and living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, never perfectly, but progressively better, and I can only do this through the Spirit. Upon awakening of my spiritual rottenness as a believer, I began reading my Bible every day without excuse, worshiping the Lord, and praying in my daily life. Um, only God can glorify God. That's why when the Spirit comes... When you're a believer, he glorifies himself through you. So if you have the spirit in you, he's there so that he can glorify God through you. I'm now armored with the word of God and living in the spirit. I love the Lord. I love the help of the spirit. And I have diligently study and read God's word so that the spirit can work more diligently in my life. Uh, my life has taken a radical change to holiness and being able to be a shepherd, be a leader in the church, and love the church body. <clears throat> so the main goal of this is what's important, which is Christ and Christ alone. After uh, Christ sent out his disciples and they came back and they were so excited and rejoicing about how they were able to cast out demons, he said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So that's the eternal hope that I have now. And I pray that people here that are believers that aren't living a believer's life can be diligent to repent and move forward in the life that Christ wants you to. Thank you, Brennan. Would you thank him? <clears throat> Sitting all around you are friends and members of our church, and they would give testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ can change you. He can transform personalities. He can heal hearts. He can forgive guilt. 
He can mend marriages. He can mend marriages. Should I say it again? He can fix families, restore relationships, break bitterness, and give you a love for others you never thought was even possible. Because it, as Brandon said, it's, it's not us, it's Christ in us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and through me. Changed lives prove what no other faith can, that Christ is alive, that he's risen. The proofs of Christianity are undeniable. Fulfilled prophecy, post-resurrection appearances, and transformed lives. The big question is, does your life prove that Christ is alive? Then believe that he is God who came as a man, died for our sin, rose from the dead, turn from your sin and repentance and embrace him with your life by faith, knowing that you will follow him with your whole heart until heaven. Would you bow your head with me, please? Close your eyes. Just let me share some final thoughts with you. Christ proved that he was the only way to heaven. In Acts 17, 31, it says that God fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, when he, one that he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If you this morning realize that you're a sinner who has gone his own way, or a, a phony Christian who's been living a lie, or a religious person who has never met Christ personally, or an irreligious person who wants to be forgiven, or even a disobedient believer who now needs to follow Christ, would you respond? If the Lord is truly working in your heart, you'll do anything. In fact, what Jesus calls for is that you would confess him before men. Because if you confess him before men, he'll confess you before his Father. But if you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. That means this, that before this day is done, you'll talk to friends or family and invite them into what God is doing in your heart and ask them to pray for you. Remember, there's only two choices. Two. One is to trust your own way, to arrogantly be made right with God or to trust in the complete and sufficient and total work of God on your behalf to save you. And that was through Jesus Christ, his son. Father, we pray <clears throat> that you would be honored and glorified by our lives today and that we would exalt you and crown you with many crowns. And Father, look forward to that day when we see you face to face. May we live by faith in a way that truly pleases you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. 
Thanks, and have a great day.